Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight, our moderator is Nicole J. Georges, right over there. Uh, She's an illustrator, writer, podcaster, and professor from Portland, Oregon. Her Lambda award-winning graphic memoir, Calling Dr. Laura, was called Engrossing, Lovable, Smart, and Ultimately Poignant by Rachel Maddow. (laughs) (laughs) By the Rachel Maddow herself. Wow. When I read that, I'm like, that's deep. Okay, so Rachel Maddow, wow. Um, and equally, it was also called Disarming and Haunting, Hip and Sweet All at Once by Alison Bechdel, <laughs> author of Fun Home. So uh, that was really cool. Allo, Dr. Laura was an official selection at the Angoulême International Comics Festival. Nicole's latest book, Fetch, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home, is a recipient of two Oregon Book Awards and a Lambda nomination for Best Graphic Novel. It received star reviews from Publishers Weekly and Library Journal and was voted a 2018 Graphic Novel for Teens by the American Library Association. We're so very happy to have our moderator here, Nicole J. Georges. Hi. Hi, everybody. I'm going to just touch this because it's less less uh, grinding on the table. Um, Thanks for coming out for this, everybody. I am going to give short bios for everyone on the panel, and then we're going to go through the slides, starting with Diane. So you're going to learn everything you need to learn about the book, and we will have time for a Q&A towards the end. I did go down to jot everybody's bios down today, and I realized they're all in the book, which just came out, which means it's probably their most recent biographies. Okay, I'm going to start with our editor, Diane Newman. Diane Newman is the creator of the comics character Dee Dee Glitz, editor of both Twisted Sisters anthologies, and was one of the early contributors to women's comics. She's been nominated for Harvey and Eisner Awards and received an Inkpot Award. Glitz 2 Go, a collection of Newman's art throughout her career, was published in 2013. Her work is included in the Library of Congress Prints and Photographs collection. Please welcome Diane Newman. To her left is Mari Naomi. And this is all alphabetical. <laughs> Mari Naomi is the author illustrator of four graphic memoirs and a graphic novel trilogy. Her work has been featured in Bitch Magazine, the Smithsonian, at the Cartoon Art Museum, and many other publications and institutions. She created the Cartoonists of Color and Queer Cartoonist Databases and is host of the Ask By Girls podcast. Please welcome Mari Naomi. Awan Mance is a professor of African-American literature at Mills College and a lifelong artist and writer. Awan's work has appeared in a number of online and print publications. Her art and comics use humor and color to explore the complexities of race and gender in the United States. Please welcome Awan Mance. Last but not least, to my left, Lee Mars. Lee Mars is the first woman to work for DC Comics and Marvel simultaneously. She was also one of the founders of Women's Comics. An Emmy and Inkpot Award winner and 2016 Eisner Award nominee, Lee is best known for her work, Pudge, Girl Blimp, now a book. Her other work includes Batman, Wonder Woman, Indiana Jones, and Gay Comics. 
Lee is the retired multimedia arts chair of Berkeley City College. Please welcome our panel. <laughs> Panelists, I'm so happy to have all of you here. Mari Naomi, you're the only one who lives here. Besides me, everyone else is imported. I don't live at the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Um, Diane, I think we're gonna start with you. Okay. I'm going to show some slides. And if you could talk about, the first thing I wanna ask you before we go into the slides, well, I guess going into the slides is going to tell us how the book began. So I'm gonna step back and let you talk about the slides. Okay. Great. Um, Grab them by the pussy is what got me to do the book. I mean, I was so angry that this monster was our president and has gotten away with so much. And he said that and still got elected. That, that made me want to do the book. I had no place to put the anger. Nothing I could think of to do that would really have an effect. And I'm a cartoonist and an editor and I know a lot of cartoonists. And I thought, okay, I'm just gonna do a book. And I did that before I, um, before I found the publisher. I just started. And um, I was very lucky to have Abrams as the publisher and have them really behind it and really not censor us or um, interfere too much <laughs> in my, <laughs> editing and stuff like that. So this page is just the first page. It's basically an introduction. And um, if you want to show the second page, that's just me drowning in a, a whirlpool with Dee Dee um, looking like she's about to throw up. And those names are all the people at the time that I could, um, I had to get them past the um, editors at Abrams, and they approved all of them. And there were more, it's just I couldn't fit any more on, and there's still many more that continue that happened after the book went to press. So there's Jeffrey Epstein for one. And um, I didn't do a personal story, I talked about something personal in the introduction, in the preface that I did to the book. And it's one of the things that came up as I started thinking about it. I think more and more incidents came up as I got more into the book and I started thinking about, I got all these stories from people coming in and I realized that I had forgotten or sublimated a lot of the story, a lot of the incidents that happened. But the one that I talked about was like coming out of anesthesia after having foot surgery and seeing the doctor's hand on my breast. And it was like, I was 25 and I was in women's comics and I thought I was a feminist and I froze. I was like embarrassed. And I think freezing is one of the common reactions. Um, anyway. I think that's about all. Well, can I quickly ask, how did you find contributors for the book? Well, a lot of them I knew already, but I really wanted to get um, a large range of ages and styles, and I didn't just want the artists from Twisted Sisters. 
So I looked on Instagram, and Instagram really deserves credit for that. <laughs> it really helped me find people in all over the world, and I could see their drawing styles, and I could write to them and see if they wanted to be in the book. Almost everybody I asked wanted, had a story, I mean, and wanted to tell it. So um, that's how. All right. Wonderful. Mari Naomi, um, before we go into your slides, can I ask what, Sorry. <laughs> what came to your mind when Diane asked you to be in this anthology? Was this the first story that came to your mind? And was it just one story that came to your mind? I have so many stories. Um, unfortunately, I've written about most of them already. Uh, and that, I think that was the first thing that I thought uh, I'd, I'd seen the, call, the calls for art for a while, and I thought, oh, God, that sounds really depressing, and I've already been writing about this f kind of thing for a long time. Like, I was resistant at first, but then um, Diane Newman's, as I told you earlier when I ran into you outside, you're one of my heroes. The, your anthology, Twisted Sister, is one of the reasons I became, like, the reason I became a cartoonist. I read Mary Fleener's The Jelly story in, in Twisted Sisters 1, and, and that's when I knew that I wanted to make comics. So this is like historically very poignant, and this is actually really important for me that I'm sitting up here with these amazing women, including yourself. And, uh, um, but yeah, the, the, but then once I agreed, I, I thought, oh God, I've already written about everything, and the things that I haven't written about, I'm not ready to yet. So I don't know, I, I, I felt like this is, this story, which I, when I read it inside the larger book, I thought, why did I choose this story? But at the time, it seemed like, well, this is a very complicated story. There's, it's not straightforward. He didn't really do anything wrong, really. He just had poor boundaries, was a little handsy and gross, but I never told him anything about it. It's, it's just one of the stories that I feel the most ambiguous about, so I, I really like talking about complicated things, and I feel like when, when I think about things that were done to me against my will where I fought back. That's not complicated. I really wanted to go there. Can you talk about this piece? Do you know which what these slides are? I don't remember which slides they are, uh, but it's a pretty short story. Uh, so I basically, see, and the, here's the thing, I have a few stories like this from various places I've worked at, so this guy can actually be a, a mix of a bunch of guys, although he's not, he's real. <laughs> But there, there are numerous jobs where, because I'm kind of outspoken and I, I tend to, I don't know, I think I'm pretty easy to get along with and I'm kind of a TMI person. Sometimes, particularly male bosses will think that it's okay to talk about certain things around me. And for a while I told myself it was, but then there's just a point especially when it starts getting personal. For example, I'm bisexual or pansexual, however you want to call that. And as soon as a guy said, oh, I like bisexuals, like that's that's beyond the point. Like you don't go there. Don't talk about me. You know, it's bad enough when you're talking about other people. But anyways, this, this guy just crossed a few boundaries and maybe he would have been open to me telling him, hey, could you not do that? But also, he was the only person who didn't seem to hate me at this job. He was my only ally, so I was in this, and, and this was right after 9-11 where everyone was losing their jobs and I needed this job, and so I was just in this position where I just 
felt like it would be a bad idea to say anything, but then it's been all this time, like almost 20 years, and I still kind of hate myself for not saying anything. Um, all that in like three pages. <laughs> all right. Um, let me know if you have anything else to say before we move I on. I will come back to you though with more questions. So, yeah. I'd just like to say that um, the database that you put up oh. was extremely helpful because it was very important to me to get uh, many, many different types of women age-wise and sexual orientation and ethnicity and your databases were very useful. I really appreciate them. Thank you. Yay. Right. I have a new one actually, a disabled cartoonist database which is I've soft launched it, so just, you know, FYI, if you're ever looking for more people, hopefully that'll be up and running soon. Wonderful, thank you. Okay, Lee, your slides are next. Juan, you're gonna be the headliner. Um, here you go. Can I ask, what went through your mind when you saw the call for art for this, or when Diane asked you? Um, I immediately thought of this incident in my own life. I've had harassment in the workplace. I've had people come up to me in the parking lot, all kinds of things. Um, but I handled most of those situations rather well. An elbow in the throat worked quite well. Screaming in somebody's face discouraged them. Uh, but uh, this one, when this occurred when I was very young. Can you talk about what happens in this comic? Um, I think there's another slide. There's another slide. Um, this, mic away from this is a true life story. Um, I was very young. I was living in an apartment. And, uh, and this guy um, who had been vaguely around... Uh, attacked me after I was sunbathing, so. And so this is the one that came to your mind? Yes, it, it popped full blown. And I hadn't thought about this for decades. Uh, this dates back to the late 60s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and almost the whole story appeared full blown in my head, which is very unusual for me. I'm an edit devil out of everything, so uh, so it must have been brewing for all these many decades. There's another slide. <laughs> I was saved by a spray mount can. <laughs> How did it feel to draw this? Did it feel cathartic or did it just feel bad? It felt cathartic. All right. Um, Let's going through the slideshow. Oh, there's Ariel Shrek. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, on. And then I'll come back to everybody with questions because we have a lot to say. Awan, oh, what went through your head when you saw this call for art or when you were asked? Um, well, I thought um, um, I thought I needed to figure out what I could contribute to this discussion, um, and in terms of um, you know. You know what are my experiences um, as someone who you know is 
Um, I couldn't, I didn't have any, you know, for me the Me Too movement had really made me think a lot about bodies and women and being in, um, in you know, notions of safety. And I didn't really have, I thought, well, I, I don't really have a story to tell about me, but this has really changed my life. <laughs> and so what does that mean? Um, you know, um, I don't know. Now I, I, I don't know how many people um, who identify as women would say, well, I don't have a Me Too story to tell. But there's no one who is not <laughs> transformed by this moment of people coming forward and actually mapping out the actual landscape of what it is to live in this society. And so um, I thought, well, actually, I do have a story to tell because um, this has transformed the way that I look in the world. And so the first thing I thought was, well, you know, my partner and I were, you know, follow the news and as one person, particularly looking at people in film and in literature and in the arts, after another, after another, I, you know, it just, I thought, well, I don't really want to like another movie a whole lot because <laughs> you just never know what's going to be up with the, the star or the director or the writer. Um, but what was really transformative to me, um, and in this slide, I, um, my partner and I were talking about, oh man, those people, you know, here we are in Los Angeles, right? those Hollywood people, they just get into some stuff, don't they? <laughs> um, and then I was looking at Facebook one day, and a good friend of mine um, told her Me Too story, and, um, and I started reading all the responses, and what shocked me, um, and what was really important to know is, so many of the posts started with, of course, Me Too. And, um, you know, that whole notion, um, you know, it made me think, well, why, you know, that's just what it says here, why not Me Too? Um, is it happenstance? Um, the world looks really differently to me now, and, um, and I don't think I'm going to step through assuming all of the things that I once did about, um, about the people I know. I don't really know um, who's... You know, not mention the women who've had Me Too experiences, but I don't know who of the uh, folks I know who identify as men um, have ended up on the other side of such a story. And then as we, you know, certain things unfold, we get, we hear men who have these stories as well um, and haven't had a lot of space to tell those stories either. And so, um, you know, I feel woke in a really different way. Mm -hmm. And then, your story, you kind of, you shined a light on a lot of different ways that you were examining your life in the wake of this or just adjacent to this. Right. Um, no, I think, in, you know, I, I often think about race. In some ways, my whole experience of the world is really very much overdetermined by being a black person. And, um, and so, you know, the idea of what safety feels like, um, what is a safe space in which to speak, um, for me is really complicated. Um, it's not necessarily a space in which everyone is a woman. It's not even necessarily a space in which everyone is queer. In many respects, the spaces in which everyone is black um, I, I have a, you know, feel safe to me in ways that none of those other spaces do. And so it just made me think about, how complicated it can be to tell stories about your experiences when your idea of community and the community that actually is one that is less complicated in terms of its embrace of your stories is, is, is a lot smaller and shaped very, very differently. 
Um, speaking of safety or the idea of safety, how have your experiences or the things that you drew about in this comic affected the way you feel about safety in the world? In small groups, in big groups, in institutions? Or your sense of belonging. That's another thing that Awan's comic touched on. Was kind of the feeling of being like, oh, it's okay for me to be here. And then something like this happens. And you're like, oh, I'm very other. Or, oh, I'm not safe here. Well, for me, when the Me Too movement first stopped up, popped up, um, I suddenly became aware of what different lives women lead than men. Because in the sense that we're sort of on guard all the time. 24-7, even going out late to pick up the paper in the dark, depending on where you live, you have to be aware. And I, I suddenly saw all these women uh, kind of scanning their environment when they're going to get their car, or there are all kinds of everyday things but they are so aware. Now, guys should be aware, <laughs> because I know plenty of people who've gotten mugged, no matter what sex they are, but um, it's kind of living in a menace all your life, and you don't even think about it, or you, you, you don't think about it unless you've been jumped once or mugged once. I think women do think about it all the time. And that's one of the things that I realized as I was doing this book that we're just, I became very sort of paranoid about, this is interesting because there's a lot of men in this group here, but I became paranoid that, you know, that ordinary looking guy walking down the street was actually an abuser. And I started looking at everybody kind of trying to see underneath, and not that I wanted to, you know. I, I, but what Lee said about having to be aware all the time is something you internalize very young, you know. And I know that men can be victims, too. There's lots of men who are abused by priests and all kinds of stories to tell. But... Women, when they get into an elevator, that's like a prime, really scary moment. And you have to be on guard. And am I, should I get in? Should I not get in? And going to a parking garage that's sort of deserted. I mean, there's a million things like that. And I felt that Me Too was changing one thing that was important, which was um, that in the case of uh, he said, she said, or she said, he said, men were always believed first, and the woman had to prove it. And that is starting to change for me too. And that's one of the real societal changes that I have experienced, you know, that happened so fast. And I know that it's not perfect. There are cops that abuse their power, there are men that abuse their power, there are women that are afraid to respond and 
freeze and all that, but I think there is some change from it. My biggest surprise in the whole Me Too movement was that people didn't know. Like, I just assumed this was common knowledge when guys would be like, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, really? And in fact, my first draft of the story that, you know, it didn't end up being in this book, I eventually talked about that one experience was I, I was originally going to do just a list of all the different ways I have to keep, like, watch out every day. Like, I carry my pepper spray. I would put my long, lustrous hair into a ponytail. I just shaved it all off in this last heat wave um, while, you know, while jogging because apparently it's pretty common that guys will grab it and that's how they get you careful with your ponytail if you're jogging. Um, Anyway, I started this long list of, of all the different ways I try not to get raped by a stranger, and uh, it got too depressing. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to tell my own story because that's less depressing. But uh, but yeah, my biggest surprise was just that guys didn't know, and I think that really affected my decision to try to come up with a story for this book because I thought, well, okay, clearly we still need this. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean... Truly, for women, and I should say for non-binary people, too, it's not, it doesn't feel groovy to walk around by yourself at night. I remember I saw a Twitter poll or something. Someone said, what would you do if there were no cis men? And a lot of people just said, take a walk after dark. A lot of people just wanted to go outside. And, you know, it was a thing that feels so simple, but I was like, well, yeah, of course. Of course I can't go walking by myself at night. Well, so I wonder, what is the, I mean, a lot of these comics, in these comics you see these things happen in every kind of situation. In situations with people's families, in situations people are laying in their bed sleeping, or on a date, or at a party, anything, anything. People unconscious in a normal way, people unconscious in a party way, every way. So I wonder, what is the burden of responsibility on victims in society, or on people that are vulnerable to this kind of violence. You know, because like Mari, you're talking about like, you know, you're basically like going out with like armor, <laughs> you know, you're like Rambo being like, I'm gonna go for a jog. But like, why is that your responsibility? And I don't know, just the question of responsibility, take it where you wish. Well, there's nothing you can do about it is the problem. And all those things that we do, all the, the armor that we put on, there's no insurance. I mean, I, I'm so careful and I still constantly get to have me too moments. Like every week there's something, something happens. I get cat called. I'll, I never take Ubers or Lyfts, but sometimes if I'm traveling and they call a limo for me, I recently had a situation where this guy I was trapped in a car with for an hour and a half was really, really scary and was, you know, t- kind of t- telling me his sex problems and insinuating that I should help him out with it. And it was like, this stuff keeps happening, even though I'm middle age, like it just keeps happening and it doesn't matter how much pepper spray I carry. So, um, you know, but I like to feel safe. So I just keep carrying the pepper spray. <laughs> and I guess, um, you know, in terms of burden of responsibility, I think it's a, I mean, of course, it's a societal issue, and so I don't think any one individual um, who is feeling unsafe um, or a survivor of some sort of violence or harassment has any responsibility for that. Um, When you were talking about the pepper spray and the notion of, you know, kind of feeling like you have armor, it made me think about how many of these stories and how many of the stories I've heard from people over the years. I mean, those stories are not stories of, they're overwhelmingly stories about being indoors, 
um, with people you who may be acquaintances. And it, I think about the degree to which people go, we all go to feel safe in the place. I mean, what can you can control? Well, you can control when you're out, when I'm outside. At least nothing will happen to me there because I've got my keys between my fingers and I've got my whistle. And But, you know, where your keys and your whistle don't really transform your experience of being inside with at work with acquaintances in the dorm. Um, and so I think a lot about that because I think about, you know, um, I think about safety relative to the larger black community as well and how unsafe black people of all genders are um, in terms of stranger crime. Um, and, you know, that black people of all genders are more likely to experience stranger crime outside um, in addition to however unsafe inside will be. And so, um, you know, it's for me, it's been very much about, you know, as I, you know, read through the stories, um, and I'm still reading through the stories, um, you know, this meditation on the illusion, um, or as I say in my story title, the delusion of safety that we all, in some ways, have to live with so that we can be in the world. I understand that, um, partly because my uh, great-nephew is half Ethiopian, and I am terrified. Um, he's tall for his age. He lives in Dorchester. He goes to public school, and he's very happy little boy. He's learning um, on the weekend. He's learning how to speak a mark, and, you know, he's got family. He knows he has uh, his grandparents from Ethiopia came to visit and he can speak to them. And he's visited um, my sister, who is his grandmother, out here. And he's really flown an awful lot. But I am terrified that someday he'll take out his cell phone and some cop will shoot him. So I understand that um, from the outside. So I guess with books like this, it's overwhelmingly you see people blaming themselves for this thing that, as you were saying, is a societal issue, you know? So like this child grabbing a cell phone and you have to teach them like, don't touch your cell phone, don't comb your hair, like don't do anything. Um, but it, it's an overwhelming amount of labor and work that people who are vulnerable to these kinds of crimes or attacks are having to take on or discuss instead of the people that are, you know, I'm not seeing like a ton of anthologies of different, um, of different people that have, that are in the more power position, kind of processing how they can best wield their power in society. <laughs> um, anyway, be that as it may. Another thing that came up when I was reading a lot of these comics was self-blaming, you know? So it seemed like there was kind of like the stages of grief of the comics of, in this book where like, so there's doubt and denial and shame. Like, oh, is it really happening? Is it really bad? Is it actually that bad? And then you, then you, your body pivots to like shame. Or you're like, well, don't tell anybody. Cause like, oh, it's so embarrassing. Um, and then there was a self-blame moment. And so, Mari Naomi, in your comic, I feel like there was a little bit of you being like, I should have done this. I should have done this. Um, can you talk about kind of the feelings that this brought up when you were drawing this comic? Nausea was a bit pretty big one. Uh, so this, this guy, as I mentioned, was my only friend at this job that I had very briefly, and we were pretty chummy. And I, I guess 
until I was writing this, I wasn't really aware that I was kind of terrified that someday he's going to find me on Facebook. I don't even remember his last name, but, you know, so, but, but again, like, I don't feel like he really did anything wrong on, in some sense, because he just had poor boundaries. There's a lot of people who have poor boundaries, but I also think that, yes, he, he should have known better. I don't know. So, so I feel like, you know, on, on one hand, I feel like if I'd said something, then it could have been a learning moment for him because I was, you know, not giving him the, be the benefit of the doubt by not saying anything. But it was also self-protection. I don't know. I'm still very conflicted, clearly. And I don't know that I would have do anything differently if it happened again or when it happens again. Lee, was there any ambiguity in your situation from your vantage point? Well, this was back in the mists of time. Uh, this was long ago. But in those days, not only were guys always believed, as is shown in the story in a couple of instances, but um, society really came down on anybody who said a peep about any of this. It was it was always the woman who had done something. And in my case, I was wearing a bathing suit. Now, I had been sunbathing outside of my house, but still, I was in a bathing suit. So imagining telling the cops this, uh, and, and the guy, even though he did have a cut on his forehead, he could have come up with something, uh, you know, some lie about that. Uh, and so looking back on it, I think I should have uh, reported him whatever. If I had to go through tons of shit because of that, I should have done it. But uh, thinking back to my 22-year-old self, uh, I couldn't have faced it. So there is a regret that he didn't get nailed for this, but that was then and this is now. Um, well, that guy sucks, that I just want to say. That. <laughs> Screw that guy. <laughs> I forgot to say the thing in the beginning which is that if you end up having an emotional response and you start crying and you feel like you wanna leave, it's okay for you to walk away. Because I know when Diana has done this, this same kind of panel and book promotion in other cities, sometimes it's very emotional for people. So if you end up catching a feeling at some point and you need a moment, take a moment. I forgot to say that at the beginning, I'm just saying it now, nearing the end. Um, I wonder for all of you how this, you know, Awan, going back to, the, to your comic, um, thinking about belonging. It seemed like the last couple panels from your comic, you know, when somebody's in a space and then they are, I don't know, you, you, when something happens that makes you feel very other or very aware that everyone else in the room is aware of how you're different than them, even though you're not there for that purpose, it, it kind of hits into your sense of belonging in the place where you are. And Lee, I know personally, just from knowing you, 
that you were often the only woman in illustration circles. Sometimes people would only hire you because from seeing your name on paper, they thought you were a man. Um, and so a lot of us have been outsiders in different situations and in different levels and different ways. And so I wonder um, how these kinds of Me Too scenarios or Awan, the scenarios that you spoke about in your comic that are adjacent, how these things hit or touched your sense of belonging in different places or how it changed the way that you navigate. And I don't just mean, you know, like now you carry a baseball bat when you walk your dog, but like your sense of belonging in more chill spaces, spaces where you are supposed to be welcome as a community member. I wanted to I, I touch on something that Lee said, but also yeah. to answer that uh, one thing that, um, when the whole Me Too thing was happening, I jumped on board because I love talking about myself and, and my experiences, and I love trying to make people feel included and all that. Um, so when I started sharing my stuff, and pretty much every time anything goes viral on social media for me, like just the trolls come after me immediately. Uh, so that's that's something, like even the, which is why I think it's important that we keep telling our stories and keep putting it out there because I did, it was years ago, like five years ago, I did, had some stupid XO Jane story go viral about being on a panel and one of my pan, fe, fe, uh, fellow panelists was openly harassing me like during the panel and it was so horrifying and like nobody stopped it and I didn't stop it and, and that was like, it was an XO Jane article and man, that was unfortunate. That was my first viral experience, and that was so miserable because I just kicked, all these male rights activists came after me, and and uh, and it, of course it. Well, for for the three days I, that I couldn't stop looking at my phone blowing up, I just you know wished I hadn't written about it and stuff. But then once I kind of climbed out of that, I was like, no, you know, I'm gonna write more about this stuff. This sucks. Like, I don't know. I I feel like. As a, well, maybe it's not our duty, but I, it is. I feel like as artists, as as you know, public people, it's, it's kind of our duty to help others out, you know, by martyring ourselves in that way and getting the trolls, weathering the trolls. Have you heard from people who were helped out by your work? Yes, and that's what makes it worth it. I want to say that. As these stories came in, you know, it was like a gradual thing. People finished, and it took like over a year to get all the work in. I became um, much more concerned with what it was like not just to be sexually harassed or raped, but what it was like to be a woman in all these different societies around the world as many as I could find, there was very little difference. There was a sense of entitlement that women didn't have. And it was always, people were embarrassed, they froze, they didn't say stop. They, they took the blame themselves, even though it wasn't their fault. And I started to feel that what was needed was this incredible change in society, and I don't see how that would happen, especially with Donald Trump as our president, which is, you know, a whole other insanity. And I felt that I was gradually getting more and more um, feeling separate and being aware of patriarchy and just, um, the entitlement, when I see these guys, the senators on TV, and 
these like incredibly entitled old white men and saying something about, you know, my uterus. <laughs> it was, I couldn't stand it. The other thing that one, the, another thing that happened from the stories is I noticed when women were talking about rape, they remembered little tiny details of, of the reality that happened. Like in Carol Tyler's story, she remembers the radio that was on a shelf near her in this trailer and she remembers the light fixture and what it looked like. And that's another thing that happens. It's just, um, the thing that happens is people internalize it. They, they think that somehow, I'm a woman so it's my fault. And some of them are little babies, you know, and they grow up with that. So I don't know what I'm saying, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> well, I wonder on a, I'm, I was interested to know what visual themes came up because for me when I was reading the anthology, um, I have a separate sexual assault story that isn't in this anthology, but I do have it for sale up front. Mm -hmm. But I ended up using um, plant imagery and vines and kind of like blackberry thorns. And I actually, and I thought I was so original, but in reading these comics, there's several that I found almost in a row that all use plant imagery. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them was about somebody having to deal with the fact that the person who abused them was still in their family and whether they wanted to pull that relationship up by the root and they kind of use that as a visual metaphor. And other people really had um, imagery of plants. And I don't know if it's because something's happening to your biological body so you feel like part of the earth and that part feels rotten or whatever, but were there other visual themes or themes that you found as these came in? I think the main themes were um, not visual. I think everybody found their own way of expressing it. Some people did use plants, some people used metaphors, some people just came right out and said everything very detailed. And I think that's what's good about the book is you know what they're talking about, but they're talking about it in incredibly personal ways. And I think it would have been not boring, but overwhelming if everybody said, okay, this is, this. Is, I was raped and this is what happened and this is what happened. And what I like is that people have to find their way to tell their story. And I didn't interfere with any of that. You know, I welcomed it. For the panel, if you could go back and talk to yourself, the earlier version of yourself, the self that you drew in this comic, in Awan, you get to go back to whatever experience you would like. What would you tell yourself? What would you say to that person? It's going to be okay. You're going to come to terms with this, and you're going to thrive. I think everybody does come to terms with it and thrive. I mean, I think it's a good thing to say to people, but it isn't necessarily true, and people have their own timeline. I'm remembering 
an attempted rape when I lived, I don't know, I was in my early 20s and I lived on the Upper West Side and a guy I thought was my friend offered to carry up some packages because I lived in a fifth floor walk-up. And I really had a fight. And I didn't believe it at first. Then there's this moment where you realize, wait a minute, I, if I don't do this, I'm going to get raped. And I don't know how many years ago that was. I can't even imagine, 50 years ago or something. And I remember it. I had buried it for a long time. I didn't even remember that it had happened. It was like the fourth thing I remembered that I didn't know it happened. But I wonder, I want to give Lee her experience of telling herself in the past, like, it's going to be okay in the future and you are going to thrive because I see you thriving. But Diane, what would you tell that version of yourself? The version of yourself that had to fight like hell. I would say I'm really glad I fought. Mm. And that, but you shouldn't blame yourself if you can't. I have nothing for past me. <laughs> really? Well, I think um, I just, well, I, I'll just say this as what I, you know, I look back at the 80s and when the first time I was on my own in college, late 80s, great time to be in college. Um, but, uh, and just how little I actually understood about the world and um, the conceit that everyone looks at me and sees me as a human being. Um, you know, I think that uh, in all of my identities and their complexity and intersections, um, it has been, uh, coming of age has been an unfolding of the realization that actually not everyone sees me as a person. And I think there's power to actually knowing that. Um, knowing that actually can be its own form of armor also. Right. Well, this is actually um, kind of kind of related to what you just said, but um, but it is kind of interesting. Uh, so ever since I shaved off my head, I don't usually wear lipstick around. I'm usually just wearing workout clothes when when the public sees me. So I look pretty butch on, on the average day. And since I cut my hair was below my boobs before I cut it all off, and and I've definitely noticed a very different treatment in public. Uh, at the grocery store, just how people treat me. It's very interesting. I'm not getting treated well, but I kind of prefer it because I feel like I've, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the 80s movie They Live where he puts on the glasses and he sees everyone for who they really are and they're like half of them are zombies. I feel like I put on the glasses and I could see who the zombies are now and it's kind of awesome. And I, and I think bringing it back around, the whole Me Too movement kind of showed you who the zombies were a little bit. A few more of them. <laughs> um, I want to throw it open to Q&A. If our audience has any questions, you do get a free poster for asking a question. That's a transaction I'm offering you. Such uh, a deal. <laughs> such a deal. Otherwise, I will absolutely not give you any posters. <laughs> Yes, 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 maybe, maybe, no, 
I didn't say no. I did some editing with some people, but I didn't put out a call like people are saying. What I did was I wrote individual cartoonists whose work I liked and saw examples of and asked them if they had a story that they wanted to tell, and then I let them tell it the way that they wanted to. Sometimes I helped a little with clarity, but other than that, um, no. I didn't ask anybody that I didn't want. I did have some people. One woman said that she'd never had any experience like that. I found it hard to believe, but I, you know, I, I couldn't argue with her, and that was fine. Another woman had a story she wanted to write, and she got sued. It was connected with a comic convention and a publisher, and she, that was the story she wanted to tell, and she dropped out. I think it worked out okay in the end, but she couldn't tell her story. One woman got raped, and she had been planning to tell a story about a rape earlier, and then she got raped. We had to just extend her more time so she could do her story. So it was, it was a very intense process. The question is, was there a limit to the number of pages? And for people who contributed, was it hard to limit your story to that number of pages? Um, in the beginning, oops. In the beginning, I just let people say how many pages they wanted. As it got filled up, I had to tell some people they could do a four-page story or a five-page story. And somebody said they had to do a nine-page story when they started out asking for 12, they wound up with nine. And it was kind of a juggling act toward the end. And I would have liked to have more, give everybody as much time as they needed and as much space as they needed, but they added two signatures to the book. <laughs> so um, they made it longer because we had so much work. And I do think some people were stuck with two pages and Maybe they couldn't tell their story in two pages. You know, I don't know, but most people that I I assigned a number of pages to um, didn't have a problem with it. So. I don't remember if you gave me a number of pages, um, but I generally work well under constraints. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Speaking of the person who was getting sued, one, somebody I know who works in Hollywood was like, you know, I think that Harvey Weinstein, or some of these guys spent more money on non-disclosure agreements, or spent more money on payoffs than they did actually giving women money to develop scripts. Like they spent That's more right. money trying to cover their asses and silence people. Speaking of 
little off the subject, but there's a podcast called You're Wrong About, and it's very worth listening to the Janet Jackson episode. Any other questions from the crowd? That's just somebody chatting. You're all so certain. <laughs> it takes time. Sit back and listen, <laughs> is what I would tell them. I can tell you about my husband, who's a cartoonist also, and who got very deeply involved with the book as the work came in. He read it. You know, he read all the stories. And so he's probably um, the most, the man who's most identified with the work because it was an avalanche coming in <laughs> and and so many different stories. But I, I don't think the language is as important as the way you say something. You know, how you're, you're, what you're feeling. And I know language has become a really big deal with people wanting to define themselves with gender and stuff. and. I think that's fine, but and there are there are conditions like one of the uh, women in the book is a trans woman, and she was very hurt by some feminists who would not accept trans people in their marches. Like if you, they weren't a real woman, which is incredibly offensive and a big deal. There's a, a, a big chasm between um, some feminists who didn't want to accept these trans people. And one of the reasons I did this book when I, as it started was I wanted, I wanted to get many points of view. And in the beginning, I wasn't certain if I was going to get Ask Men or not because I just couldn't quite picture myself talking to these male cartoonists I know and saying, by the way, were you ever um, harassed or raped? And I could picture it with women, you know. Toward the end, I got one guy from, I think it was Pakistan, who wanted to do a story, and I would have really liked to do it. But at that point, the publishers thought it would be an odd thing to do, to have one story. And I think that somebody should do it. I think it's a very important issue, and it's not just a woman's issue. And um, I hope that somebody will do it. Uh, 
I was coming home from class. I, at the time, was teaching, and I could walk home because it was only a few blocks. And it was at night, and I had my keys out. Uh, and as I was walking down a block, um, this is in Berkeley, I was walking down the block, and I heard behind me uh, the strides of a guy. They were very heavy, and, it, and he was walking very fast. And so I crossed the street, and this voice rang out, Oh, I'm sorry I scared you. It's just me. I'm hurrying because I have to get home. <laughs> so I looked around, and here was this little guy who had heavy feet. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think... I think you need to be aware of the effect that you'll have unconsciously. You, you need to be aware that the women that are around you, either outside or at a party or something, are perhaps unconsciously but definitely feeling menaced all the time. And so anything you can say uh, or do to allay their fears is very valuable. With the exception of if you get into an elevator with a guy <laughs> and he says, I'm not going to rape you, that's not very, <laughs> very comforting. Does that happen to you? It, it's happened. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. You know, this, is, this is a very hard question. What would, what would I want men to know? I will say I taught women's studies for a year when I was in graduate school, introduction to women's studies, not an experience to be repeated. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> One of the things that I mentioned, well, we were having a discussion of a wonderful article called uh, Sexual Terrorism by a, um, a scholar named uh, Carol Sheffield. It's a brilliant article if you get a chance. I think it's free on the internet these days. And so we were talking about it, and one of the things I mentioned is, you know, just, uh, you know, keep in mind that if some, if you're having sex with someone or approaching a sexual encounter, and this was, the discourse was very different at this time. This was probably around 1994. Um, if you're having sex with someone and they're not really moving in a way that suggests they're enthusiastic or if they are crying or, um, or looking away, then that's probably not something that is um, reciprocal. Um, and a student who was a really sweet guy stood up and you know, said, this is really important to know. I'm, I'm glad you told me this. Where can I learn more stuff like this? Um, so I think I'd want men to know that. This, the stuff that we were talking about in that class, which was news to him. And I think that this whole notion of the ideology of sexual difference, that sex is something that men like and women kind of will sometimes concede to, um, leads to huge, huge notions of entitlement to get something. You know, the whole notion of getting some. And, you know, it's this idea of, extracting a resource from a place that doesn't want to give it. Um, that whole discourse that completely ignores the landscape of women's desire. Um, and I could go on for ages about this because I think about how people talk about Phoebe Waller-Bridge's flea bag. And it's a show that 
is very much centers a woman's experience of sexuality. There is no nudity in the show. Someone described it as a show, well, there's a lot of nudity in it. No, actually, <laughs> it is a woman um, being at the center of her sexual experience, and that feels somehow um, profane and shocking and obscene, <laughs> but not in a good way. So that's just shifting that. Um, you know, to say, you know, take people's word for it. Women feel very similarly, um, they like sex too. And so um, with that in mind, if you are having sex with women, think about that. Um, that can inform a lot of the decisions. It's not something you're entitled to get. Um, yeah, that's, you're here. <laughs> you know. here. I mean, it depends on the guy. <laughs> there, I was reading about that dude who plowed into a bunch of people in Toronto who was a self-identified incel. And I don't think I know anybody like that. <laughs> I hope I don't. But it just made me realize, wow, like I never want to leave the house again. And not because I might get run over, but because there are people out there who think that if they kill off all the good-looking guys, then the good-looking girls will then sleep with them, which is, I don't, but it's not just he he, he, it's not just that he was thinking it. There's like a whole Reddit full of dudes that think that. And I don't know. I, I, I used to, when I was younger and bolder and cockier, I thought that I could, you know, I had the answer for people. But I don't think I have that anymore. When I was 20, I, I had guy friends who, who were kind of like that, who felt kind of entitled and couldn't understand why girls didn't like them. And, and I would I would try to school them about it and say, look, first of all, you dress horribly. Let me go out and dress you. And second of all, it's because you're 20. Like, wait five years. Girls will be all over you. But, you know, but when you're 20 and you're frustrated and you're a guy and your hormones are crazy, apparently, like, now you go to Reddit and run over people. I don't know. It's, but listening, listening's a good answer. <laughs> When you listen closely, you can hear what people actually want, and then you can pay more attention to their experience instead of assuming you know their experience from whatever your cultural touchstones or experiential touchstones are. Um, I don't mean to have the last word, but I do want to say we have to wrap it up, so I want to thank you all for coming from New York, Atwater Village, <laughs> Oakland. Thank you. Berkeley? Thank you for coming here, and thank you. Um, we will have books. We will draw on your books. Thank you for your good questions. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.